Listen, lady. I was up and ready to go. Some people were not up and ready to go. Listen, it's my last morning. Excuse me. Are you going to cut all this Kelsey Cleary. Kelsey, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, everyone. My name is Kelsey. I am Natalia's very old friend from college when we were roommates. Mm-hmm. I've been friends with Kelsey since our freshman year of college, which is now like, what, seven years ago? Yeah. Oh my and, gosh, we're oh so my gosh. old. In August, it will have been seven years ago. You're super, well, I mean, we're not old, but like, we're old. You know what it's I mean? it's because, hard to make that realization. Yes, it's hard to say like, oh, by the way, I was a freshman in college like seven, seven years, years ago, ago, because that truly doesn't make any sense. Because I don't know who I am. I don't know who I am. So, Kelsey, tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Um. So currently, I do research at University of Massachusetts Medical School in addiction psychiatry. Um. To help treat people who have mental health and substance use challenges and who are involved in the criminal justice system or who experience homelessness um, or veterans. And I'm actually with Natalia today because I just applied to graduate school um, and she has been so gracious to let me stay with her um, and welcome me into her home. I am a swimmer, so I really love um, competitive swimming and I also really love to paint and create pottery. And that I think is. that's a well-rounded view of me. <laughs> it is, because I still have the thing you made, like, senior year oh, yeah. from some ceramics. Um, she made, um, all, like, there was, like, a group of girls that the, the five of us or four of us were, like, really close. She made us, like, little pots, yeah. like, little <laughs> containers, and they were super cute. And I still have mine. It keeps my laundry change in it. Um <laughs> But yeah, so Kelsey, can you tell me why you got interested in this field? Yeah, in psychology in general or Mm -hmm. in my specific population? Both. So um, I think I got interested in psychology from a very young age, uh, just with experiences that I had uh, and family difficulties that I had growing up. Um, From a very young age, it became really apparent to me how important it is to be able to talk about what's going on in your life and... Mm -hmm thoughts that you're having Um, and for various reasons when I was very young um, and well I guess through my adolescence I wasn't given the opportunity to talk to someone Mm -hmm. and it was very hard I know culturally mental health is very different for a lot of people and there are different stigmas and so it wasn't even that it wasn't like in my family uh, we were like oh mental health isn't real or you know Mm -hmm. oh you don't need to talk to someone. It's just that it was just never talked about and never treated as a, or not not that it was never talked about, it was never really treated as a priority. And as a young kid, being very naive, I didn't even know that it was an option to like talk mm-hmm. to a therapist, mm-hmm. um, which I think myself and my whole family could have benefited from. So again, it's not that it was like, hush, hush, don't talk about it. It's just that like, 
it, it just wasn't presented as an option to me. Mm. And I didn't really start to seek mental health help um, until college. I had a little bit more autonomy and, mm. you know, more control and more independence over my life and was able to kind of do that. But that's really from a young age how I got interested in psychology in general is just through my own experience of realizing how badly people need help. Mm -hmm. um, in my current field, so working with people who have mental health and substance use, and um, in my work, I've primarily worked with people who are involved in the criminal justice system. So for me, that has included people who are in jail and then they're re-entering the community. And it's also included, um, uh, these are called alternatives to incarceration. So people are diverted from jail or prison um, into um, treatment, basically, mm -hmm. if, um, if they have mental health uh, disorders and substance use disorders. Um, and so they're diverted from that. So I think that is, those two groups are really the ones that I'm the most interested mm -hmm. in. And I think... The reason for that is because um, over the past, I mean, especially very recently, but over the past few decades, correctional settings have had an influx first of black people and people of color, but also of people who have mental health and substance use mm. disorders. And so really in the past, I think, you know, in to my knowledge, we've really been talking about it in the past decade, mm -hmm. prisons and jails have literally become treatment centers mm. for mental health and substance use. <clears throat> and they're obviously not supposed to be. And that also means that, like, I'm calling them treatment centers. They don't actually offer good treatment to people. Mm. Um, and incarceration is never, it never does good to anyone. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so the fact that people who are in jails and prisons who have these challenges and need this help are first in prison is not or jail is not good for them and then they're being given if they're first of all if they're being given treatment it's not high quality treatment mm -hmm. and most of them aren't being given treatment and so for me um you know my passion for like helping people mm -hmm. uh who struggle with mental health um, and particularly helping uh, various minority groups who struggle with mental health and mm -hmm. substance use, to me, that can't be done without also looking at the intersection with the criminal justice system. Mm. So does that stem from your childhood background? Like, you know, how did you have people who were incarcerated in your family mm -hmm. that also, you know, needed mental health help? Like, was that a con was that a combination that led you to, mm. like, seek out that? Because you've been working in at this particular job since we graduated, yeah. you know? Yeah, so I, in my family, I don't have anyone who's been involved in the criminal justice system, but um, <clears throat> I think just, sorry, <clears throat> I think just as a young woman growing up in this country, and particularly as a white woman growing mm -hmm. up in this country, I feel very called to address the disparities and mm -hmm. um, the disadvantages and the lack of access that people of color and black people experience that I don't. Mm -hmm. And I think right now it's very hard to ignore the narrative and like to ignore the news of what's happening mm -hmm. in this country to black and brown people in so many different ways, but particularly in the criminal justice system. Um, and I think just having to 
having to watch that and realizing that because of the skin color I was born with, that will never happen to me. And mm-hmm. because of the skin color that other people are born with, that happens to them. Is, like, it, I can't, like, just deal with that and let mm-hmm. that be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I feel called to do that in my work. Mm-hmm. Um, I want mm-hmm. to, like, literally dedicate, like, my life <laughs> to that. I think, and I think that's really a different, like, a choice point for me where... I could work with other populations and then do like activism in my free mm-hmm. time and um but for me I felt like that wasn't really doing enough given mm-hmm. the legacy of white people in this country and white mm-hmm. women in this country um I felt very called to just do more. So with that being said, how do you feel <laughs> like you tackle the idea of um kind of like the thing of like white men's burden or like you know, this, this white savior complex, Mm -hmm. because that is, you know, going into this field is like incredible. And it's, and people who do go into this field, you know, do have a passion for others, Mm -hmm. but there's also that other side of it. If it's like, am I going to create this white man savior complex or white woman savior complex? Do you fear that? Have you experienced that? What is that like? So I haven't experienced that yet, particularly because, um, in my work currently, like I don't work with, um, like, patients or individuals directly, so I'm not, like, currently giving treatment to people, so I'm very disconnected from, like, the 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 therapist-patient interaction um, in terms of, like, my research role. Um, it's definitely something that I've thought a lot about, um, particularly as I, like, apply to graduate school and I'm applying to be a clinical psychologist. Um, there is... Not only is there this, like, white woman savior complex, but also um, even in research, there is a legacy of white researchers coming into black and brown communities and exploiting those people for research purposes. And so even um, both as a clinician and as a researcher, there is a very tangible and painful legacy that has been created Mm -hmm. in this field and within the country at large, within the country's history. Um, I've definitely thought a lot about that and I definitely, I don't think I've flushed out all of my thoughts yet, Mm -hmm. but I think it's something that I'm very cognizant of that I'm not doing this for my own reasons to feel good about myself Mm -hmm. or, um, yeah, I think a lot of it is just, you know, processing that, like, I'm not doing it to feel good about mm-hmm. myself, but I think I'm doing it to to address um, a lack in access that mm-hmm. black and brown people have that white people don't have. So it's kind of like, you know, I think everybody needs help in general, but, like, statistically it's very... Uh, it's very much easier for white people to get help and for white people to get, frankly, anything in their lives. It's mm-hmm. a lot easier. And when you look at black and brown people, that's not the case. And so I just think that I'm I'm trying not to approach it from like a savior. Yeah. You know, obviously, of course, I think that that complex definitely still happens. But I think for me, it's just this is where the field of psychology needs to go, because historically, um, research in psychology, you know, when you read articles um, in this field, the sample is pretty much all white and pretty much um, middle class or up, upper middle class. 
and that's just where the field has always been. <clears throat> and so I think as we move into, you know, as problems in this country change and as people's needs change and as we learn more about what people's experiences are and what helps them, I think just naturally the field is moving toward this. And I think it's a very important place for us to go. Do you see that, like, demographic makeup in your job? You know, do you see more black and brown people at UMass? Or you, you know what I mean? Mm. Or, is, or also, like, Kelsey downplayed what she's doing. Kelsey's getting her PhD. Like, I'm, a, I'm applying she's to get applying my PhD. She's applying PhD. So she's like, I'm just going to do this little thing in graduate school. No, no, no. She wants to be Dr. Kelsey. Um, so, like, in the, in the programs, are you seeing, you know, black and brown people? Mm. Are you seeing Asian people? Are you seeing his... Like, you know, are you seeing yeah. those people also applying to those programs? Or did you feel like it was, like, a demographic makeup of just mostly white people? Or- yeah. Yeah, so... Um, so, so far I've only had two interviews where mm-hmm. I've met the faculty members at the schools and then also the other applicants and the current students. And I was very pleasantly surprised by the demographic makeup of both the, well, actually of the current faculty, the current uh, graduate students who are already in the program and the applicants who I was mm-hmm. there with. Um I think it's very easy for a lot of people to talk diversity, and that's a buzzword that Mm -hmm. if they say it, they automatically get credit for saying it. Um, But to implement it, both in their faculty and also in their student body, is a completely different story. Um, So at both programs, um, so one of the programs was in D.C. and one of them was in Baltimore, which are both very um, demographically diverse. And I did feel like the faculty and the student body and the applicant pools made up what I would imagine is, you know, an equitable representation of this area. Obviously, I'm not Mm -hmm. from here, but like um, even at the first program, I think one of the things they told us was that there are nine core faculty members and eight of them are minorities Mm -hmm. and eight of them are women. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that was really amazing. Um... To see, so you know, they did have um, <clears throat> um, African American and Asian, and I think also um, Middle Eastern women represented in that faculty. Um, and then, same for the last place that I just interviewed at, um, which had a much bigger program. Um, I would say there, well, I also didn't meet all of their faculty. I would say they had more diversity in terms of they had more African-American faculty, but they didn't, I think I only saw one Asian-American faculty member, but in terms of the applicant pool, it was extremely diverse. And I was, again, just very pleasantly surprised to see that representation Mm -hmm. um, within our field. And I think going into this, just see, just being able to see that and not again not having these programs say diversity but then their whole applicant pool is mm-hmm. white um is huge so it's so interesting to hear like as i mean obviously i know you for many many years right so it's it's very different for me because so i like know your heart but yeah. for those listening it's also kind of like in what spaces do you find that you have to take a step back? Mm. Because to say, talk diversity as a white woman is can be yeah. difficult and can have that struggle. Have there been yeah. times when you've, like, 
spoken up and you're like uncomfortable with speaking up because you feel like you're taking the microphone from somebody Mm. else or or do you feel like it was appropriate for you to do so yeah so I think it's something I'm very mindful of um making sure that I'm not overstepping my bounds and also being aware that there are some topics that I can't talk about as a white person and as a white woman um you know, in places that I can't talk and that, Mm -hmm. you know, my experience just doesn't matter Mm -hmm. compared to the experiences that people are sharing. I definitely don't say anything. Um, However, I will say that, um, you know, we've kind of been talking about diversity in terms of race and ethnicity, but to me, it does include so much more than that. And Mm -hmm. so I think in all of the other things that it include, I can participate in that discussion a little bit more, right? So I think... Within the American Psychological Association, I think they have, like, nine, like, bullet points of what is included when they talk about diversity. Mm -hmm. I don't remember all of them, but it's, like, um, like, race, ethnicity, um, gender, identity, sexuality, religion, um, able-bodied or um, disabled. Um, That was only six, so I know there's a few more, (laughs) but, you know, so it is... It includes so, so much um, that I think in some of those other areas, I can, I would feel a little bit more comfortable. Even in that list I just gave, I don't really experience any of those directly, but through my family, I think I contribute to like kind of a like disabled, able-bodied discussion Mm -hmm, just, mm -hmm. just to say like, here's my experience growing up in that, even though I don't experience it myself. But Mm -hmm. I think... I think in general, no matter which, you know, part of diversity is being talked about, um, not only as a white woman, but as anyone, if you don't have that experience that someone else is talking Mm -hmm. about, it's so important to listen Mm -hmm. and to recognize that your experience (laughs) kind of doesn't, like, it, it can't contribute to that conversation in the same way. Like, if someone is talking about their experience with racism, I'm not going to come in and be like, well, I've never done that to you. I'm going to listen and be like, here, you know, please, like, Mm -hmm. share with me and listen. Like, my experience in that conversation does not matter. Mm -hmm. And I think I try very hard to, like, check myself and recognize Mm -hmm. when is it appropriate for me to share and when is it not. And I think that comes I think that's specific to each conversation and to each person but it's also specific to environments Mm -hmm. so like there are also some spaces that I think like that um I remember hearing about this I don't know if you were there and I can't remember when this was but it was (laughs) obviously but it was um senior year Mm -hmm. or it might have been right after I don't know. I don't know what it was, but basically, I remember. All these like, memories. Going. Yeah, I have a uh, really bad memory, but we. I remember. I think I was with. Kim, oh, it might have been after. I think I was with Kim, because she would have been a fifth year, so that's mm-hmm. why. But I remember we were on campus, mm-hmm. and it must have been like right after the um, election or after like the nominees had been announced, and there were just like a gathering on. Oh, it was when we were trying to be like sanctuary cities or something, mm-hmm. and there was a gathering on Clark campus. And I remember this one um, black woman being like, you know, black people and people of color, you can come with me and we're going to meet in this room. Mm -hmm. And she was like, like, she was like, white people, like, please don't come. Mm -hmm. But, you know, people of color and black people like will be here. And I think um, that was really like kind of my like the first time that it was thrown in my face that like 
I sh- like I would obviously respect that but even if she hadn't said that I might have still kind of like taken a step back before mm-hmm. thinking about like joining that meeting um that it was just very upfront that that space is needed without white people it's true I think I think in my own experience it's definitely been um some people sometimes take offense like when people of color say that they're Mm -hmm. like you know like no this space is just for us and it's like well why or why can't we you know there was there was an argument on Clark's campus of you know why isn't there like a white student union (laughs) oh my god I yeah this I remember (laughs) this happening oh my gosh I don't remember that I I was part of the black student union Mm -hmm. um for a couple years at Clark and I remember us we had a meeting and we had like a talk about this and Mm -hmm. everybody was super outraged and then I did have to take a step back for a second and be like okay well why can't there be a white student union Mm -hmm. and then I was like well because their culture is inherently celebrated yeah yeah and so it's 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 complicated when you talk about culture and and diversity and this understanding because I feel that so often um media portrays us as and us but I mean like black people as like a monolith Mm. um and I and and black people aren't we're very diverse and Mm -hmm. and culturally rich and but I think there's some experiences because of the way society Mm. has constructed certain things that we experience things in a monolith Mm -hmm. because I feel like I can talk to another black person about I don't know like you know when you get into an uber I think I've said this on the podcast before, but, like, into an Uber and, like, something happens, but there's, like, another black person in the car and we just kind of give each other, like, like, (laughs) we just know, like, we just... You give each other that look. Yeah, just the look that we equally know that something's weird and we're like, all right, Right. so we just in this together because that's how it has to be. Yeah, I think, I think that is really interesting, the idea of sanctuary cities and then Mm. also the idea of, like, we're going to section ourselves off, which... Mm -hmm is I feel like a very difficult space to be in when it mm-hmm. comes to talking about race racism and identity because at the same time we do need spaces for ourselves mm. just like I think women need spaces for themselves for sure. you know but how are we cultivating those spaces mm-hmm. for ourselves like the campus we were on the freshman year you lived in a hall that was an all female yeah. hall but every single floor had like two kitchens right it three kitchens three kitchens yeah. on each floor yeah. So it's like, what does that say? Right. And what are we telling and, women? Yeah, and to put it in perspective for people who don't know our school. So, yeah, the dorm I was in was uh, just for women. It was four floors and a basement, I think. Each floor had three kitchens. Uh, the other dorms around campus, the entire dorm, even if it was three or four floors, had one to two kitchens maximum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it's just like, what are we telling women about how we value them? Granted, that dorm, you know, was super old, but still, it was, it still hadn't changed from just being the female designated dorm. And I think, I, was this during our time there? They had conversations as to whether like trans women would be allowed in in that dorm. Um, I remember that like being a conversation, Mm. but like. All of those things, like, you know, how do we, how do we create that identity? Because I'm not mad at the idea of, like, women having their own dorm. What I'm mad at is the idea that we have three kitchens on each floor. 
and no one's like, hey, this could be inherently problematic and what right. is the message we're trying to send to women, even when that when that space was built. Yeah. Because that hall had always been for women. Right. So the idea that this hall that always been for women has always had yeah. that, you know. And it was probably built in, what, like the 80s? Yeah. Yeah. 80s or 70s around yeah. there. So, like, not, you know, long enough ago, like, okay, you know, typical gender roles, but at the right. same time. Yeah. These things. So, yeah, I think it's it's hard finding a, a way to kind of cultivate your own space mm-hmm. with having people understand and also how do we create that space that's not problematic. Yeah. Um, because I think, you know, someone's saying that, okay, this is for the black and brown people is, mm-hmm. is great, but it's it's still... I think it can still be a little jarring. Mm-hmm. And not that it's like, okay, I'm going to care about the feelings of my exactly. people. Exactly. Yeah, so for them it's jarring, right. but it's like, I'm yeah. done kind of caring about your feelings right. in a way. Yeah. So I, I don't know. It's a, it's a difficult space, and I think mm-hmm. it's, what's really crazy is the fact it's 2019 and we're still talking about, oh, this is like a difficult space mm. for us to be in and we don't know how to handle it. And right. You know what I mean? I don't know. That's kind of my mm. my take on it. Mm. in just a, you know, weird way. But, so, were you always interested in this, like, incarceration, black and brown people, and, you mm. know, in throughout college when you are studying, or, what it, or was it when, like, you know, you got that job, and mm. you were like, okay, I need a job, because graduation, yeah. duh. And um, you are kind of just thrown into that specific field, and then you are like, oh, I love this field. Yeah, so, I think... It was, I think it was a combination of when I, when I got to Clark and I would say maybe like more towards the end of my time in Clark, mm-hmm. like junior and senior year, um, because of where Clark is situated mm-hmm. in Maine South and because it is so, it's that open campus and it's in the community, um, seeing the very stark contrast between Mm -hmm. the people who go to Clark and what they look like and how they dress and everything. And then you take one step off campus and you're in like a completely different world of people in a much lower socioeconomic status Mm -hmm. who are mostly black and brown people when that's not really what Clark looks like. Um, It was just such a stark contrast that that was, I think, when I first started to confront you know oh like do I want to change the population I work with for a really long time I thought I wanted to work with veterans um and I think again in my later years at Clark because of the community that started to shift because it was really just upfront in my face that the people literally right next to Clark need so much help and they're probably not getting it um so that started to change and then I when I took this job, I didn't really know that it had that it worked with people who were incarcerated, and that um, it worked with like so. Well, so in my time, I've worked primarily with the um, with the criminal justice involved population, and then I've a new project has been working with people who are homeless. Mm-hmm. Um, so within both of those populations are really people of color, mm-hmm. but I didn't know that coming into the job. Um, so it was kind of something that. 
I more so was thrown into because of graduation and needing a job, and it was in... <laughs> Weren't we all? Like, yeah. Truly... And it was, like, in... I mean, because it's a medical school, it's in psychiatry, but we're really doing, like, psychology. Yeah. So it was in my field, and I was like, okay, you know, it's a job, and it's in my field. Like, it can't really get better than that, and that's very lucky post-graduation to have that opportunity. So I did just, like, do that, um, and it was something that... I did kind of, like, fall in love with along the way. Mm-hmm. So just to back up, like, a little bit, we talked about, you know, people of color having mm-hmm. access to mental health resources, mm-hmm. but if, you know, talk a little bit about your own experience, you know, having access, like, mm-hmm. you don't have to go into why you decided to, mm-hmm. you know, get mental health, but mental health help, but, you know, your your difficulties and with finding access to that yeah so um as I mentioned before I think I started to I in uh college I I utilized um Clark's like counseling center Mm -hmm. but I think they're you know because of limited resources they're like time limited so I think they would only give students like six sessions unless they had a very strong need for more and then they would try to connect you um to community treatment um, so I saw someone there while I was at Clark, um, just for a few times, and then um, I actually felt like we didn't really match very well, and it wasn't very helpful to me. Um, and so I stopped seeing her, and that was in, oh gosh, that was probably in either 2014, maybe 2013, 2014, Um And then I didn't seek help again until last year, so 2018, um, partially because I kind of had a bad taste in my mouth about, like, I didn't match with that therapist. And I had heard, like, almost, like, horror stories of (laughs) the trouble that people have not only accessing help to begin with, but once you find a therapist, do you match up well with them? And is there a good, I think in the field we call it like a working alliance. Mm-hmm. So a working alliance relationship between a therapist and an individual. Um, because we know that like when you have a good relationship, a good like professional relationship with your therapist, it makes your outcome so much better, obviously. Um, and so I had heard literally these horror stories about how People tried a therapist for a few sessions. They didn't really match up well. They had to go to another one. They had to go to another one. And that sounds like a lot of work and a lot of effort that I just was very, like, afraid to make Mm -hmm. um, until circumstances in my life led me to, like, really need to do that no Mm -hmm. matter how hard it was. And so last year, um, I really um immediately needed mental health help and Mm -hmm. so I looked up there's actually a website if anyone listening um if anyone could benefit from it um if you go to I think it's psychologytoday.com you can search for um therapists and psychologists um you can search like in your area and you Mm -hmm. can also search what you are seeking help for so you know people specialize in depression or trauma or in families um and then you can also search based on your um insurance so really you can search for everything Mm -hmm. that kind of matters when you're looking for someone um so if anyone listening could benefit from that it's it should be um psychologytoday.com um and so I went on there um 
Oh, so actually, let me backtrack. So my work has, um, I think it's called the Employee Assistance Program, Mm -hmm. which is really great. And it's kind of akin to like Clark Counseling Center where like it's available to employees. Mm. Um, and And I assume also to students of the medical school. Um, and my boss, so I actually told her, I was like, hey, this is happening in my life. Um, and she recommended me to the EAP. Um, and the person I met with there was, she happened to be really great. And she had this, you know, really extensive background in, um, doing social work. And so she was really helpful, but again, it was time limited with her. And I think I only had like six sessions. And so she recommended to me different, um resources in my community to try um and then actually I think my boss had recommended the psychology today website Mm -hmm. and so I tried psychology today I looked up what I needed help with and like my insurance and I also was limited in my geography because I couldn't drive very far to I don't have a car so I couldn't drive anywhere really (laughs) to get help it really needed to be accessible to me on my public transit Um, And so it was limited in that sense, for sure. And so, um, you know, I did the employee assistance program for, I think, six sessions. And while I was doing that, um, started to look at psychology today. And I called, I think it ended up being five or six um, local therapy offices in my community. Um, And they... They, I don't think they answered. It was also hard because I had to call after business hours because I work during the day and I'm not going to, personally, I didn't feel comfortable making a phone call in my office for therapy because they ask you, why do you need help? Right. Also coming from someone who like is in the field of therapy, you not feeling comfortable to talk about therapy. Well, yeah, especially like, yeah, with my coworkers hearing me, like I don't want them to know what's going on in my life in that realm Mm -hmm. um but yeah that does say a lot um so I would have to call after business hours and obviously leave a voicemail and I would be like almost like crying on the phone being like hey like I really need help like this is kind of an emergency like it wasn't an emergency in the sense that like I needed to go to the ER Mm -hmm. but like I needed help very very badly and so I would call you know these five or six places leaving voicemails and also some of them will, will have, like, an online, like, referral form yeah. that you can fill out. So I would do that, too. And no one got back to me for several weeks. So, like, I think I would try one place and, like, wait a, a yeah. week. And then they wouldn't call back and then I would try another one. Um, and nobody got back to me until... Oh, and then I think at that point I told my employee assistance program counselor, like, nobody is getting back to me and I know our time together is almost up. And she recommended to me the center where I'm currently um, getting therapy. And so I was connected to them and it's been extremely helpful. But that took, I think from the time that I really needed to to get help, and Mm -hmm. to me it was like an emergency, to when I first met with my therapist, that took, oh my gosh, that took almost two months. Because I had to schedule, even after I got connected with him, His first appointment was, like, two weeks away. Uh, So it took six weeks to get connected to him uh from the time that I first started to seek help and then the waiting period of, like, when he was available after that. So that was really hard. And, again, it was... I was in very serious need of help. 
Um, and I know we were just talking about this, the fact that like, I, first of all, being in the field, like Uh being kind of uncomfortable talking about it in my own office was a big deal. Um, but that I, as a white cisgender woman who is, you know, who has a full-time job, who is economically fairly well off given Mm. our generation, (laughs) given, 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 yeah, given that I have college debt um (laughs) but like I have a full-time job I'm a white woman I am cisgender like heterosexual like all of that the fact that I couldn't find help and the fact that I had people I had my supervisor who is a psychologist and and I had this counselor at my work who know the area and who are telling me who to call and where to look you know all of the stars like should have aligned basically and they still Mm. didn't and most people don't have that, that <laughs> to access. help them. Yeah. yeah. Most people don't have their boss to say, hey, go to this website or, you know, call this person or whatever. So most people don't have the resources to know, like, where to look mm-hmm. and how to look. And then just even statistically, it's harder for women of color and LGBTQIA people and people of different gender identities mm-hmm. to get help that is safe and accessible and comfortable for them. So the fact that I couldn't do it when, like, as a white person and as a woman and all this, frankly, I'm probably, I should have, like, statistically had the easiest time doing that. And I didn't. And so what does that tell us about these women who we already know it's hard for them regardless? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's going to be even harder for them because it was this hard for me. And yours is, you're not paying, uh, you're not, you're paying out of pocket. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's also... A factor so it was so hard for me to find treatment where I currently get therapy it's not in my insurance network so I do pay out of pocket and I think that speaks to how desperate I was for help at the mm-hmm. time because mm-hmm. this is not cheap and for a long time last year I met with my therapist every week and so it was like almost $200 a month that I was paying to see him and if you don't have $200 is a lot that's to just a lot like... that's like half of my rent a lot to burn yeah, yeah I mean I mean the also the uh, the weird blessing in disguise is like I know that you know you they do income based mm, pay right yeah so, a lot of places especially in like lower income communities do have like a sliding scale but that's not the case for so many people you know yeah. what I mean and so it's, it's just so interesting to me like the access you know mm. we, I feel like there's a, a narrative out there about know just go get some help Mm -hmm. as if it's very simple to do like when I moved to this area I you know didn't know anybody and it took me a year Mm -hmm. to find a therapist a lot of that had to do with like me being lazy but (laughs) also also the fact is like you know who do you kind of go to who do you hear from I you know I had I just had the website with mm-hmm. my of my insurance like whoever who has my yeah. insurance, and they can like match you with people right. in the area and then you got a call and right. set up an appointment and I love my therapist's yeah. office now and I think it also speaks representation because it's like an all black mm. female therapist mm-hmm. office which is incredible I didn't yeah. know something like that existed mm-hmm. um until I started yeah, going I didn't either it was but it's really cool to like walk in and mm. see that. The majority of therapists are, like, mm-hmm. black and female, and mm-hmm. so 
getting therapy from someone who looks like me, you can, like, yeah. understand. And I, I feel like she understands, like, in a different... And you don't have to ex- try to explain. Yes. Like, I come from a Caribbean family. She also comes yeah. from a Caribbean family. Like, just those little right. nuances. And that's not just... Like, my therapist when I was in uh, Massachusetts was white and she was fabulous and mm. truly the day she ended up having to close her practice but mm. truly the day she left was a very sad day yeah. for me. like I didn't I was like I don't want to get therapy yeah. anymore because I was I was so close with her and she was so good at what she did right. for me so it's like I don't know the conversation around getting help and mental and mental health yeah is is so intriguing and at the same time so limiting mm. with what we currently have, yeah. you know, like, and, and mm. people's access yeah. to and, it. And also, like, when you're struggling with various mental health challenges, it's exhausting to ke- do a week's long or a month's long or a year's long search. Like, you know, I know I kind of said, like, I would leave these voicemails, but in those voicemails, I was, like, crying and like very explicitly telling Mm -hmm. people why I needed help and it was emotionally exhausting to do that and like struggling with depression and anxiety like even making a phone call took so much effort Mm -hmm. and a lot of anxiety about making that phone call and you know there are a lot of mental health challenges that are more severe than the ones that I face um that make it even harder to reach out for help um and that's so funny that you say that because actually I I was supposed to have a therapy appointment on Monday, but I'm going to be traveling. Mm-hmm. And so I texted my therapist being like, hey, can we reschedule? And he told me that he is moving. And he was like, you can still see me, but like, he was like, you can still see me in my new office and we can keep like the same rate. Mm-hmm. But where he's moving to, I can't access him because I don't have a car. And so now I'm like sort of getting into my head about it, like, that he was like, we can talk about terminating, we can talk about transferring you to another mm-hmm. therapist in our in our office, or you can come see me in my new office, and I haven't responded to him, and I'm just, like, want to give up. <laughs> like, Don't do that. It's hard. <laughs> it's, re- it's really hard to make that transition, and I yeah. feel like when life gets in the way mm-hmm. of what you're doing also when you're trying to like I had an appointment with my therapist mm-hmm. for yesterday but last minute you know I had a training that I had mm-hmm. to go to and so it's like oh I can't make it but that's that's really hard because you know if you go to a therapist obviously if it's a good therapist office bookings are hard they're you hard have to work around like your schedule and the therapist schedule so you know I had a text her and be like hey like I can't, you know, come, and she's like, thanks for letting me know, I'll reschedule, Mm -hmm. but, you know, all these times for, um, my schedule. Yeah, um, it's really hard. Yeah, make me really worried, and, like, and, like, about trying to get things. Yeah, and especially, I, so I have been very fortunate, um, as I mentioned, I think, like, my boss was one of the people who helped me find help, so Mm -hmm. I... Um, I have a very, very good relationship with her and I was able to tell her, like, this is going on in my life. And so she has let me, like, I leave Mondays early to go to therapy Uh and I'm very lucky that I can do that. But that's also the challenge too, is like therapists typically work nine to five Monday through Friday. And if you also work nine to five Monday through Friday and most people 
you know, bosses are really tough and employers are really tough. They probably aren't thrilled that you want to leave early or maybe you don't have a relationship where you feel comfortable saying that you need to go to therapy, which is sad, but it's completely understandable that it's not just treated like a doctor's appointment. Um, you know, so if you don't have that, like, when are you supposed to get help? Mm-hmm. How, when, literally, if you work, when are you supposed to do it? Because, like, a, ther- a therapist's office is still, like, a job for them. Yeah, so it's right. Like, you can't expect them to have, like, weird out. I mean, yeah, I'm some very, of them do. Yeah, I'm but... very lucky, like, my office is open till, like, mm-hmm. eight or nine, depending on the mm-hmm. day, and they're open Saturdays and wow. Sundays. Um, so, like, I'm very lucky in that sense, especially, like, being in grad school and working almost full-time, like, mm-hmm. having that kind of balance is really, right. is really lovely to, you know, be able to schedule my appointments when I need it. Mm-hmm. Um, but this has been great, and I just have one last question okay. for you, um, because we're coming to the end of our time, because Kelsey's leaving me I today. am, everybody. I'm about to catch a train to go back home. To a plane? Yeah, a train to a plane to a bus. To a bus? To get <laughs> oh home. <my> God, <laughs> yeah. So I know it's a lot. You gotta take that bus from Boston. Yeah, I know. It's real. Um, But so my last question is, which I ask all my guests: um, How do you define being a woman or womanhood? Mm. Ooh, that's a really good question. I was not prepared for that. Girl, listen. I feel like I'm back in my interviews. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Oh my gosh. Well, to me, I think my definition of being a woman is very. I think it's very personal to anyone, and I think especially now as people are becoming more aware, and I want to say more accepting, but I don't really always know that that's true, of what it means for different people to be a woman, um, and how just being a woman looks looks and feels different for every woman. Mm-hmm. And so I think, I think part of being a woman is for me to recognize that my definition of being a woman is probably different than than every other woman who I meet and I think that that's such a beautiful thing because I think um it's something that unites all of us and we all experience it in such different ways and even my experience as like what it is to be a white woman is different and to be well to be a white cisgender heterosexual woman Mm -hmm. is so different from every other single person's and I think that's such a beautiful thing that we're still united in the fact that we all identify ourselves as women. Mm-hmm. Um, I think to me, being a woman is a l- incredible strength and incredible perseverance and tenacity, especially in a lack of attention and credit and care. Like you hear like, for example, like hidden figures, like mm-hmm. those women w- did everything and they're the reason that we have so much of what we have today and they didn't get any credit until this movie came out like yeah and so but they still kept going and they still recognized that it was important and they persevered through I'm sure incredibly like racist and sexist interactions in their jobs um as many of us do but I think Right, I'm just, when I think about, like, women and, like, women of history, I'm amazed that particularly, like, women of color, like, have kept going. And, like, just this fact that, like, when you hear about all these, like, um, female, like, scientists and mathematicians and, you know, doctors and everything, 
that they just like you never hear about how they like gave up and I'm sure they wanted to a lot and like I think we all probably think about like this is really hard it's really Mm -hmm. hard it's hard for me to keep going and I can't imagine how hard it is for women who have challenges that I don't face how hard it is for them to keep going um so just it's this like perseverance and tenacity that I think we all have and Mm -hmm. I think that unites all of us um and I think now we're starting to be, I don't want to say be able, but we're starting to take what we want and do mm-hmm. what we want. And there's still significant pushback around that. And again, like a lack of credit and a lack of acknowledgement and a lack of like safety in a lot of circumstances. I think women continue to get stronger every day and every generation um and have always been like that and that's also saying a lot so I, I'm saying I think women continue to get stronger but women have always been strong yeah. and it's just it feels like this bond and this unity and this strength to be a woman and this pride to be a woman and to know women activists and geniuses in so many different areas who have come before me that I being a woman is a lot of like how do I do that too mm-hmm. That was yeah. such a good answer. I like it. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much, Kelsey, for joining me of course, today. Thank you for having me. Of course. <laughs> um, and for all you listeners out there, thank you for listening. Um, please, please, please follow us on Instagram and Twitter at PrettyFaceLady3. And then also, uh, please like us on Facebook at More Than a Pretty Face. And if you would like to email us with any questions, comments, concerns, or you just want to say hi, or you want to be on the show, you want to sponsor the show because looking to sell out, um, please email at prettyfacewomen at mtapfpodcast.com. All right, talk to you soon. Bye.